This is eSports Today with Rob Zachney and Andrew Gruen. Welcome to this edition of eSports Today for December 1st, 2015. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, alongside Andrew Gruen. We'll be taking a look at the first ever StarCraft II Legacy of the Void tournament as Korean heavyweight Solar took the title at DreamHack Winter. We'll also answer a few of your questions from the last week, including one about team dynamics and conflict within eSports teams. But first, we welcome eSports journalist extraordinaire and pillar of the competitive gaming community, Rod Slasher Breslau, to talk about DreamHack Counter-Strike and Luminosity's amazing, improbable run at the Face It 2015 Finals. Rod, welcome to the show. Hey, Rob. Hey, Andrew. Good to see you guys. Good to be talking to you guys. It's been a while. Uh, Andrew's off writing a book. It was just finished now and like going to be on stands, and that's amazing. And you're like 30 now. Dude, it's happened today actually yeah happy birthday man thank you yeah you just you, you grew up before our eyes that's how long it's been we're just so thrilled that you chose to spend it here with us instead of your family uh yeah no of course <laughs> I've, already played, I've already played several hours of a rush today um it's a, a good bunch, birthday gonna be doing that right after and now he's on an esports show so this is basically the perfect uh slasher birthday <laughs> uh so so rod I, I gotta i gotta ask you just just to start out hey and wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute i'm only gonna be talking about counter-strike what i watched starcraft also this was the first <laughs> legacy of the void tournament rob i have not abandoned starcraft 2 it was this where you put me yeah, now I an put, abandoner i put, you, I put you in a little is... box you're not welcome back in the scene i get it <laughs> no really it's because like, it. we, we're, about this. we love starcraft and we, we've been watching for a really long time but we're relative neophytes to the to, to the counter-strike scene and we love bringing on people who can kind of elucidate things a little bit better for us because we're relatively new no that's that's cool but what gotta give that love to starcraft it's trying oh. its hardest it's it's running its heart out it's <laughs> it's slowing down but it's it's gonna I don't, try I don't know that it is i don't know that it is slowing it's down try, it's, it's it's been holding steady for a while maybe mm-hmm. this is just the new normal maybe like it hasn't been declining lately it just kind of has found its equilibrium and we just love the starcraft we have not the starcraft <laughs> we remember uh this is i i can tell you at one point andrew and i were kicking around a, a second podcast called sad about starcraft uh which was going to be which is going to be our weekly starcraft show uh, right but, uh, tw- but 2015 turned right around we're back to feeling optimistic anyway uh i wanted to ask you though uh there were a lot of great teams at this dreamhack tournament and there were a lot of people we'd sort of looked at as serious contenders uh for the for the win uh recently LG didn't make any of those lists. Uh, in in fact, like Andrew and I were sort of looking at each other over the course of this weekend and sort of trying to figure out who they were. Even like mm-hmm. it, it, we just sort of missed mm-hmm. this team the, the the entire year. Uh, tell us a little bit about like what the hell happened this weekend. You had, you had so many great teams who've won major championships, and uh, LG just started knocking them off one by one. I mean, you know, the obvious story is from this weekend is Luminosity's run. It, they were one map away from realistically having probably the greatest run of any Counter-Strike team in a major event in the history of the game existing from 1.6 in the early betas through Source into Go. They, that's that's the type of of things that they were able to do, considering that they came in with two new players several days <laughs> before entering the tournament is kind of remarkable. Yeah, and just to clarify, LG didn't end up winning this tournament. Fnatic came away with the, the victory, but it was it was unbelievably close. Like, this was not something that anybody expected to happen. And, you know, you know what did you see from Luminous Gaming, LG, 
uh, luminosity gaming, excuse me, LG, that made you feel like this was actually something that that they deserved to be able to do, that they were they belonged at the top of this tournament in the grand finals. They have been uh, playing in North America uh, for I would say a few months now. They've had, they've had a pretty solid run, but they've always done at the major events. They've been able to be more consistent than North American teams have been. Uh, in these last few months, Cloud9 had a great run uh, maybe five months ago where they made back to back back finals three times in a row. But since then, I have a stat I think I, I had a few days ago. The American teams as a, as a whole versus the top level European teams are 1437 in maps. Ooh. And Liquid, who was representative for North America this weekend at DreamHack, is like 5 and 30. <laughs> against all of Europe this year, and since Hiko joined, they're like they're three and fourteen. So the North American teams as a whole versus uh, versus Europe has not been uh, that great. Luminosity, on the other hand, including all of their wins this weekend, has won one less map than the entirety of North American teams combined on land in the last five months. So Luminosity has been putting in the work and has been able to show that even though they moved to North America and are playing against North American teams in scrims and in practices and on those servers and similar, you know, situations, mm-hmm. that they are they are able to overcome whatever limitations North American Counter-Strike has had to be able to go on and place consistently top eight at the majors, which mm-hmm. is a very big deal as you get auto-qualified into the next event. And then now this event, to be able to... Um, you know, with the leadership of Fallen make those, you know, severe roster changes right before a major event, one of them bringing in FNX, which is a longtime Counter-Strike 1.6 legend for MIBR and, mm-hmm. and Fire Gamers and other Brazilian uh, Counter-Strike teams. And then to make those changes, lose the first game that you play 16 to 0 <laughs> against Fnatic on Dust 2. You, it could not go Ooh. any worse. There cannot yeah. be any more of a demoralizing uh, thing. Uh, there was another 16-0 and 0 ha- that happened also in this tournament with TSM and Liquid, but there have only been, I think, four or five of them now in the history of Go. So it could not have gone <laughs> any worse for them and, like, how they were feeling and going into the, ne- the next day. Yeah. And, you know, they were able to go through the strongest bracket, which is defeating Envy, who won the last major, defeating NIP, who is at a home and playing well in front of uh, a fanatical crowd, Defeating TSM, which is probably, you could argue, the, the, the best team in the world right now, along along with Envy, and then going up against Fnatic as the final boss and putting them on the ropes after winning the first map. Um, definitely yeah. some special stuff. Definitely great play. Colzera really is the player that comes out in my mind that deserves a lot of a lot of hype around, a lot of props right. for for um, for getting them through. Uh, these games you know this is like to clarify this isn't a a north american team originally this is actually a brazilian team originally and i'm curious like in your thoughts about like what is what is a major grand finals like near near championship win like this mean for like the brazilian scene because brazil is always sort of like the quiet like um on the fringes of the esports scene country there's always some really great players from there but never never quite breaking into the the top eight or the mainstream. And I'm just curious, like, does this, is this like a nice little pat on the back for them that kind of encourages them to keep moving? Well, historically, Counter-Strike has always been Brazil's bread and butter. That's really? always where okay. they have shined in esports the most. They had a very legendary team called Made in Brazil who did win two international tournaments in Counter-Strike, which were the only 
ones that South America as a whole has ever had back during the 1.6 days. I think this was ESWC um, that they they won through two time champions, and those were the bit the get against the best European and North American 1.6 team. Uh, I wasn't aware and, of that. Okay. Uh, so for Brazil, that's always been their biggest accomplishment. So for Go, it you know it, it does follow in that vein. The FNX who came on was one of those players who back then has had the experience to beat these beat these Europeans back mm-hmm. in the old days. Uh, he was able to you know come and Fallen, who has had a lot of leadership, who also played 1.6 for Brazil back during the 1.6 days. They were able to bring that same type of kind of winning behavior it's similar to north america and an aggro style kind of you think of virtus pro and virtus plow mm-hmm. and and the <laughs> e, like the eastern european south american flair is kind of more similar than north america it's like they have the bravado and then the the skill to to actually make it happen when it counts to win in the end where north americans kind of fail under pressure a lot of the time the brazilians you know really showed that that does not happen to them so this is but they have not been able to have the same type of winning as they had in 1.6 like even though they got those two championships 1.6 they didn't do a whole lot but they still got those two world championships they were they were known so far the brazilians um like they only joined luminosity uh, a few months ago after coming off of their their last team so this is going to be a very big deal i think for brazil in general even though that they've done this before still it'll still motivate you know, I think a lot of Counter-Strike players over there in, in esports. So I wanted to ask, with, with those last-minute substitutions coming through and the fact that uh, Luminosity were probably not considered a strong contender for uh, to make a deep dive in this bracket uh, at this tournament, uh, did they did they benefit from, from that status? Like, was this team just basically completely unscouted because nobody would seen this roster playing together uh, and nobody would really been looking at them as a serious rival? Uh, I think that the, the roster change probably did throw some people, you know, off guard. Uh, their their group, if if their group had been studying them, then they probably wouldn't know as much. Luminosity also, in their first matches of the day, they had played all the different maps as well, where other teams had just played um, Cobble and, and Mirage over and over, so they had, didn't have a wide variety at the very beginning of the tournament. Uh, Luminosity at the same time as in North America, playing in North America and the European teams. I mean, you consider the best teams in the world right now to be Fnatic, TSM, NV, and VP. So it's the four European teams. And then if you had to go further, you'd probably put NIP in there. Uh, you probably... And then, then you start with Luminosity and what they did now. Now they're in that argument. So while the top European teams are really all worrying about each other, especially those top four who have shown to be consistently better than everyone else and navi honestly and navi is up there to be better than anyone else so they they get looked at a little bit less i think as well so they're lumped in the north america teams they also had the roster changes so i think yeah it did probably help them a little bit i mean in interviews the players are always like you know yeah we look out for everyone and they recognize now that when cloud nine did it that they were like a real threat but then we've seen how they they fall off. I think Luminosity, as they got top eight consistently, they they understood that they were definitely a threat. But I think, and I, I that this probably sent a larger message to the top four or five European teams that they are to be taken, you know, much more serious right now. 
Yeah. So you mentioned Envious, though, and, and that was the really the big shock of this whole thing is that Envious didn't even make it to the out of the group stage. You know, what did you see from Envious that, that kind of felt like they fell apart a little bit? Well, uh, losing to NIP to start off the day, you know, it did not help them. They should win that game. I mean, coming off of the major, uh, but it is best of ones. So right. you, you get put in that position and, um, you know, that that's what's going to happen. But they had to they have to play another game, another best of three against Luminosity. I mean, they went up. They ended up going up against Luminosity, who went on their incredible run. Right. That's which true. did not did not help them. But I probably think that it's a bit of the uh, fatigue, maybe, of winning the major. Very fair. Uh, we, we, we've seen in a lot of different esports that the teams that win the large championship at the end of the year may not take the very next tournament as seriously mm-hmm. uh, or and or do well at, at the next the next one. So I'm not trying to give Envy any excuses here. NIP sure. also was playing at home. That definitely helped them in their match versus Envy. That definitely helped them in their, that, that amazing series versus Luminosity. So Envy had the circumstances of going up against, you know, the fan favorite home team and the yeah. team on fire while also, also yeah. maybe not wanting it as much, as badly. Sure. And I think that if you're going to lose a best of one against somebody like NIP is a really difficult opponent right there, because the, the one problem with NIP is that you never really know which team is going to show up. They have unbelievable talent on that team but you never know exactly how they're going to utilize that and i feel like there is a certainly a a a bad scenario where you can get the good nip that shows up for one map and just blows you away yeah and they had a lot of that magic this weekend i mean we saw a lot of vintage nip they were really close to beating lg they made an amazing comeback we had clutch plays from get right so nip was playing great you know they definitely entertained the home fans i was entertained of course, by them, you know, for all the talk from the broadcasters about NIP dying and, you know, the team falling apart, it seems like they've done a lot better in the in the span of time where everyone's been putting them down the most than, <laughs> th- than slightly before that when they weren't doing as well, but where everyone was still expecting them to be there. Now that everyone has had such like a low opinion to the point of they think the entire team is going to break up, which we mm-hmm. do not know is yeah. going to happen. There is definitely legitimate rumors and it's happening that get right is going to try out for cloud nine and that cloud nine will also put other players and that it, it's a very good offer for get right to go to cloud nine, probably a lot of money Get, yeah. get to get to play in America, get to move to America, which he he does he does like it um, here. Does really like California, and uh, that would that would be happy for him. But I think the NIP, even though they have extreme organizational issues, do want to keep them. And uh, you know, Forrest and Getright have been playing together for a, a long time. NIP is still a very big brand in Sweden. Mm-hmm. It's hard to. You know, they get more cheers than Fnatic did. Fnatic won the tournament. Fnatic have been the best team <laughs> for so long. Olaf Meister is a fucking god, and he played incredible in the tournament, which yeah. is why they won everything. We're not even talking about the team that won because they've won so many times already we're, we're bored in with the past two years. Hell with that. <laughs> no, but you, you know what? They, they have not been the best lately. You know, NB has just won the major. TSM has been playing great. Fnatic is the one that made the roster change. The in-game leader, Pronax, has stepped down. Uh, Dennis has now come from G2, and Dennis has played with Olaf before in LGB. 
And this is kind of a good test to see how is he going to do. And seems really good to me. Fnatic, again, now with a new in-game leader in Flusha, making all the calls with Pronax gone. Able to win the first event also with uh, a roster change. Just shows just how, you know, right. versatile these guys are and how great Olaf is and a lot of these players. Um, right. And, and so just stuff. to clarify real quick for people that uh, when we talk about Ninjas and Pajamas, NIP versus Fnatic, both of those are Swedish teams. And this was a, this was a tournament that took place in Sweden. Um, and NIP was a legendary team, like absolutely legendary team, the legend team from Counter-Strike 1.6. And Fnatic is kind of making their their name for themselves as the legends of Counter-Strike Go. Uh, so it is interesting to hear that the crowd still has sympathies uh, for NIP over Fnatic, despite the, the current way things are going. But it, it it makes me think about, like, what is this what is this tournament, this final win mean uh, for Fnatic's year in Counter-Strike Global Offensive? You know, like, did they need this final capstone win or were they already the undisputed champs of 2015? Uh, no, because we're not done yet. Well, yeah, because we got, one more. we got one more, and it's a it's a big one. So <laughs> I really, th you know what? It would they would have to be even if they lost like two o two o. It's really hard to to not say that they are easily the best team of the year. I mean, Envy did win the last major, but Fnatic won twice. Fnatic had been dominant most of the time. I mean, there was a good amount of dominance in TSM at one time. They were able to beat Fnatic on a consistent basis. But then VP at that same time were able to beat TSM on that same consistent basis. Um, and Envy wasn't playing as well, which was what caused the roster changes in the middle of the year, which is why they've had good success. But Fnatic has just been so consistent that, you know, they definitely, they definitely uh, are probably the team of the year. I don't, I don't think there's yeah. any question about that. Mm -hmm. I don't think it matters who else wins. Even if like TSM won the ESL pro league, it doesn't, it doesn't, ha it helps a little bit, but it, it won't give them, um, sure. You know, best yeah. team of the year. And it was, it yeah. was a lot of fun watching them play this weekend because like when I watched the grand finals of, uh, luminosity versus Fnatic, um, luminosity was like playing really well. Like they were in, it felt, they felt in control of the match, but it felt like every time they got some momentum, like Fnatic and specifically Olaf Meister, their entry fragger would just show up and just like stick a wrench in their spokes. And then the whole, the whole luminosity bicycle would just spiral out of control and crash. Like they were just so effective at just disrupting whatever they wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, they're always able to, to do that. I mean, they've always been very good callers and very good strats against every team. Uh, and because how, you know, the different types of ways that Olaf and Krim especially play together, um, they're able to mix it up a lot over there. And I think that that's what, what helps Fnatic is because all of them can play different roles and several of them know how to op and they can all rifle amazingly and they can mm -hmm. all... You know, and Dennis was used as the entry man this weekend, but it's like any of them can do, you know, several of the important things, including carrying and, you know, doing the fragging and, and all the flashes and the smokes. They're just very talented, all of them individually and as a team. Yeah, uh, this has been a pretty amazing season for, for Counter-Strike. This is, I think, the, the year that I think Andrew and I are both really, really getting into it. And I'm just curious as we wrap this up. Uh you know, putting 2015 in a little bit of context here, how good a year for Counter-Strike has this been uh, when you look at sort of the the, the recent and, and longer-term history of the game? Dude, it's been a great year. This has been <laughs> the best year for Counter-Strike ever, and the game has been out for 
17, 18 years <laughs> now. It's had the most players than it's ever been. Maybe the early 1.6 days there there has been some crazy thing. But no, it's um there's you know millions of viewers now have watched the majors, two million concurrent or something for the first one, a little un a little under a million for uh, the most recent one, 25 million total overall, and stadiums are filling up, and both in Europe and North America, there's, you know, there's more tournaments than, first it was, there's not enough tournaments or things to do for the players, uh, what's everyone going to do, now there there really is too many events, it's causing fatigue, there's so many tournaments the players are caused fatigue, which is not mm-hmm. a good thing. We need to fix that, and that's causing maybe the games not to be as good because they're not able to practice as much in between matches. But if this is the problem, it's much better than the alternative of there not being enough events with big enough prize money because uh, there's been you know more prize money in Counter-Strike than there's ever been. You have a consistent uh, revenue stream for the major teams in sticker money and in... Um, the um the the signatures which no other game in esports has right now and that goes to not only the players but also the team owners and the owners this is you know uh, for them and for the teams this is a lot of the revenue that that they're making they're able to make a lot of money that's not sponsorships and advertisers from this because they're able to do that better than any of the other games can including dota which has a similar type of you know, a thing you can do with in-game tickets and stuff you can put on your characters and selling items for, for, for all that. Uh, so all of that, especially because now the players are able to get that consistent money each major, which is between, I think, like, 7 to $8 million, Valve has said, for each major to split between the teams. That's a lot of revenue that's going to all the players. We don't have public breakdowns of what any of them are getting because it does depend on who how many are getting bought. You know, yeah. like the more fanatic sticker, yeah, they're getting larger the cut because people bought more fanatic stickers than, than other team stickers. So, so that is um, that's a huge deal. So I, and everything's going great for Counter Strike. We have the you know the TV league next year. Um, yeah, very exciting for, for, for Turner, and that that's a huge deal. They're already gonna be you know there's gonna be this upcoming war, which is gonna be amazing between Turner and TBS and the ESL DreamHack mtg juggernaut now fighting over the teams who've created an, an owner's union and they want you know ridiculous demands so now <laughs> owners union not but not called you know quote unquote a union uh who want ridiculous things versus two leagues who are going to outspend each other yeah fantastic for everyone involved money wise the only thing i could really complain about is the game itself uh even though the players have kind of like they, they've they've given up almost and like they're like whatever the game is good enough right now it's not a big deal there are certain things in the game that could definitely you know help it better there are still some fix you know i think like jump scouting is is messed up and pistols are still overpowered and they're making rounds i know valve loves it everyone loves it that anything can happen in in these games but a lot of it is kind of ridiculous you know being able to headshot people with five sevens from long range but not m4s and mm-hmm. and, and jumping scouts and things that are making the game re- really weird and the money weird and just the way the game game flows sort of stuff like that and the other thing would be the majors need to be above two hundred fifty thousand dollars. this is a problem look all yeah. the teams and players are getting a lot of money through the stickers and that's great but Valve needs to make the money higher. They have an $18 million international, and now 
three more majors, which are each $3 million, they are giving at least $27 million or so to the Dota players, not including all the other independent tournaments that they have. Two hundred fifty grand for the Counter Strike tournaments is laughable in comparison. If it was a different company doing the Dota majors, maybe there'd be another argument. But they're the same company. It does, don't tell me that Valve's work structure and the way they do things at the CS team and the Dota team is different. I get that they do different things, different approaches, and whatever. You can't have such a big disparity between two games that are still under the same IP Valve. At the same time, though, you're having like a you're having a tournament with like a hundred thousand dollar grand prize, like what feels like at least twice a month at this point, right? Like, I mean, this has grown naturally. This has grown organically. This is isn't isn't this isn't this the healthiest sort of esports growth, the sort of like natural, uh, you know, scaffold type growth that you always want to see, rather than the sort of uh, top down, just making it rain and hoping something sticks. Isn't this kind of the model we should be idealizing? No, it. You are right. That is true. Except that Valve has also, the same guys that make the other game, figured out a way to have now put in themselves $3 million majors. A lot of that, of course, is from the money that they made for the compendium, which will not work the same way for Counter-Strike, even though it kind of will, because the Dota 2 economy has kind of crashed where Counter-Strike is still very healthy. And the compendium is like a different way for Valve to make money off of the economy because the economy is weird where Counter-Strike is still working very well with skins, which is why you can buy skins and make money for revenue. So like it, it it's totally different. But because now they've been able to put in three million bucks for each major, then yeah, it really is significant. They can't have it at 250 grand. That's such a huge disparity for the the biggest what's supposed to be the three biggest tournaments of the year or four for Counter-Strike each year. Um they need to be more than 250k, especially because the players feel so as well. The players have all admitted that even though they do like the and they they do like the money that comes to them from the stickers, they wouldn't mind playing for the money mm-hmm. instead in the tournament for the winner so that the winner could get a million for each major instead of a hundred grand oh which... man so ownership cartels forming you got tv interests and now players <laughs> want to restructure payments oh man want... we, are we are we real I... sports now <laughs> <laughs> come on don't give valve a pass don't give valve a pass on it look they've done a lot of other things that are great but this needs to be hot this prize purse cannot stay like this it's not good for counter-strike it needs to be bigger for each of the majors and they can do it. I don't understand the problem here. It's not like this has to be an argument over economy or or budgeting or whatever it is. It, is, it doesn't need to be. Even if you look at it at the way that, like you say, Rob, I bet they want it to be a natural progression so the prizes don't get too top-heavy and maybe a downfall could happen. But if that were to happen, then they wouldn't have given $3 million at least for Dota. You think they're never going to go down for Dota now? It's not like they're going to have a $2 million Dota tournament major next year because... The, the the winter whatever compendium not the winter compendium whatever fall compendium fall, yeah. didn't do as well this year which it didn't for a variety of reasons but it's not like oh well because this didn't do as good oh no but, see, I, think, but I think that's, the, the I think that's one of the reasons now. i think that like i think you, like if 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 i'm valve and i'm looking at the numbers i would look at that arc i'm seeing with dota and i'm like you know counter-strike's doing just fine without us having to dump a ton of promotional money into it and so why would i want to start committing myself to that when i'm already to an extent, uh, having to possibly 
uh, prop up a scene that may be flirting with saturation or, or maybe just at a, at a difficult point, structurally speaking. Like, I could totally see, like, not wanting to repeat the same things you did with Dota in Counter-Strike. Now, I'm not saying that, like, means that Valve should get a pass. Like, Valve are kind of notorious for not communicating the reason, reasoning well to players and not treating all of their or fan bases equally. Or anything. Exactly. So, like, no. Like, <laughs> About anything. <laughs> right. So, so Valve should be questioned on this. But at the same time, like... I, I don't know, like, you know, when, when I when I came into esports, uh, you know, right, it was like it was 2012, right? And and within the space of a year or so, so many places were starting to fall because they just couldn't sustain the investments they were making uh, into esports. And to see Counter Strike sort of, you know, building it from the ground up uh, is just something I see as really reassuring. And I'm a little like, I, I, I'm just curious whether I want to rock that boat too much, uh, especially with TV rights coming into it. That that boat's already going to be getting pretty topsy turvy. Yeah, no, that 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 is, that is very true, very reasonable, Rob. <laughs> I'm it's very reasonable. I understand motives. All sounds great. I I understand um, all that. But pay these make, guys. But but pay the guys. Make the make the tournament be more. Uh, on that on that note, uh, Rod Breslau, uh, thank thank you so much for joining us for the discussion of uh, Counter Strike. Where can listeners uh, follow your work right now? Uh, nowhere. I don't exist anywhere except uh, pretty much on Twitter. Um, it's all you have I to say, I, Rod. I, I've been playing a lot of Overwatch, honestly. I've been playing a lot of Overwatch. Overwatch is the future. It uh, it really is for our deathmatch scene. And so find Slasher be doing. on Overwatch <laughs> yeah. and appreciate his work. Hey, you two got to play Overwatch. We will we'll join we, you we will sometime. Get into it. I've. I've as soon as as soon as soon as I get a little practice, I'm going pro with Tracer and leaving all this uh, podcasting nonsense behind. <laughs> all right, Rod, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'll have to have you back soon. Okay, let me know when you get in game scrubs. <laughs> Take care. All right, bye. DreamHack also hosted the first major Western Legacy of the Void tournament, and I think it's fair to say that it exceeded expectations on a few fronts. Andrew, you were pretty skeptical of this tournament when I brought it up a couple weeks ago. Uh, did it make a convert out of you? I think first I kind of have to elucidate why I was skeptical to begin with. I was always like deeply excited to see Legacy of the Void in action. Like that was never up for debate with me. Um, my concern, however, was that this was like uh, an, an old classic Western StarCraft II tournament. With a, you know, the likes of which we really haven't seen in a while. It was like this prize poach opportunity for some decent Korean players to kind of come over and kind of bully around oh, the yeah. Western stars. Uh, and so what I was worried about was that we would see a couple Korean heavy hitters show up, stomp all over the competition and easily walk away with the prize. Uh, and then this tends to be like really not fun to watch because it means all of the other matches lose their gravitas because if there isn't a Korean player in it, then it's kind of irrelevant because we're just seeing who gets to lose to the Koreans next in the next round. So whoever whoever wins that match is just playing for that honor, basically. Uh, and that is kind of what we saw uh, in, in this tournament. So on that front, as a tournament, this wasn't that good. Um, but as a competitive game, the first time we got to see Legacy of the Void, you know, it really came out swinging and put on a hell of a show. Uh, yeah, and, you know, I think the non-Korean players still put up a pretty respectable show. Uh, I was really impressed by 
uh, Showtime series series versus uh, Parting, for instance. Mm-hmm. And Firecake had a surprisingly decent run too. Uh, but I, I got like to be honest though, the the best series were probably uh, the Korean versus Korean series. And uh, one of the things that uh, you you told me to to go and pay special attention to. Uh, was the the Parting versus Ty series, and that was a great series, but games three and four in that series were just some of the most bonkers StarCraft uh, I, I've I've seen, and it was just a total blast watching how these players were. It wasn't just crazy fast paced StarCraft; it was also players really frantically trying to push the new units to their absolute limit, right? Like how like how good is the adept really? Parting is frantically trying to figure out exactly how much harassment, how efficient you can get right. this new Protoss mm-hmm. infantry unit to be. And TY is trying to figure out whether or not <clears throat> the Liberator is really this sort of aerial trump card. Uh or and and whether he can sort of fly that thing to victory. And it was it was a really great series on on that front. Yeah, you know, this was, uh, you know, you talk about that, and that was really kind of what stuck out to me as well. Like, when we first saw Heart of the Swarm come out, um, I feel like the the big focus was actually on the ability to restart a replay uh, from <laughs> in the middle in the middle of it. That was God, what we were really excited right, and about. What a boring feature that is. You know, that was they had a show match between Flash and Life just to show off that feature. It wasn't about the new units with Heart of the Swarm, really, because when Heart of the Swarm came out, uh, I feel like... You know, there's a couple of units in Heart of the Swarm that really still don't see a lot of use, like the Tempest. Um, and, and it took the Swarm host a little while to get some play in Heart of the Swarm. But here in this tournament, almost all of the new units really came out and made, were like a centerpiece uh, for, for everything. Like you mentioned the Liberator, the Adept, uh, and the Disruptor were all hugely impactful pieces here. And that was that was some of the most fun thing about this, is that this was not just another another tournament slightly different from heart of the swarm this was a whole new game and we really did get to see legacy of the void for the first time yeah and it even brought some like older units that maybe don't see as much use even brought them sort of back to the fore right so like in the in the uh, in the protoss versus protoss match uh between uh parting and and, and showtime you you saw the disruptor started out as kind of this uh you know super powerful uh, position denial weapon, area denial weapon. Nobody mm-hmm. could come close to each other because if you got, you know, if you actually got hit by a disruptor shot, uh, it was absolutely devastating to yeah. to any kind of units, especially squishy kind of units uh, that were in the area. And so then you saw, and and I feel like it was a sh- it was Showtime to tumble to, tumble to this first. Showtime realized that those two armies basically cancel each other out. They they can't approach each other, and it's starting mm-hmm. to look a lot like. The battle days of PvP, where yeah. two armies sort of come close and then repel each other, like you know, almost like you know, uh, magnets of the same polarity, mm-hmm. right? Where they, they mm-hmm. just they, they can't come close, and so Showtime figures out like, well, wait, a, an aerial siege weapon like the Tempest would be perfect in this situation, and he rolls it out and uses it to augment uh, Stalker Disruptor, and it turn it really added this new dimension to to that match, uh, and it was just really cool seeing these players sort of creating these new army compositions kind of on the fly as they slowly got a feel for what the what the new dynamics of each matchup were yeah you know and and i think that the the 
the star of that and, and you mentioned it being kind of uh, a force in in reforming that death ball kind of strategy for for pvp uh was the disruptor this new unit that basically has like it spawns basically a copy of itself that that is like a time bomb and so you try to maneuver that time bomb into, into your opponent's army and then it blows up and the disruptor was just like it, i mean it was so impactful and but the thing that i was so interested with uh the disruptor was that it was really fun to watch like this seems like a unit that was designed from the ground up just to be viewed not necessarily even as a balance item but just something that's so much fun because the crowd's watching the detonator just tick down and you get to see like is it going to get a good position how many units is it going to blow up and there hasn't been a, a unit that was this much fun to watch uh since the baneling from uh wings of liberty uh and, and it just like that one single unit to me just added so much to my enjoyment of the overall event yeah, it really did. And I'll tell you another thing I enjoyed about it is that so when I compare it to the days when like the Protoss Death Ball was basically defined by the Colossi, mm -hmm. uh, the Colossus, everything happens automatically. Those things get within range. They just start blasting away. And, and there's there's no there, there's no variability to that fight, except maybe who has the concave angle in, in the engagement. What I love about the Disruptor is that it's really easy to dodge except that nobody can dodge all those shots all this time all, yeah. all the times right so like eventually it's, it's you know it's kind of like you're you're watching and and each like the odds of any individual like salvo of disruptor shots like hitting pretty low but over time like eventually somebody's going to get hit hard by this thing and you could see just those moments where like everything was fine everything was fine it was just a perfect stalemate and then somebody just got distracted or was a a second too late reacting yeah, yeah. and suddenly you know supply drops by like 30 40 points and the game's completely <laughs> recast you know the other thing that i really liked about the disruptor was that it kind of fixed this long standing problem that i've had with protoss that they're there it's a race that's kind of built around really really strong effective aoe or area of effect damage like the like their storm spell or like the colossus that you mentioned before um but the problem with both of those things is kind of like you mentioned they're automatic like the colossus is going to shoot its 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 lasers and it's going to do automatic damage to something at whatever comes within range and storm is a little bit more difficult to hit but it's it's very it's it's very large aoe it's it's instant so it's very easy to hit these things very easy to do a lot of damage with those things uh and it makes it less fun to watch how how positionally players are going to use their micro to get around these sorts of things but the disruptor was like you watch the orb you know kind of move maneuver yeah. its way towards the army and then there's this sense of suspense about well is that army going to split are we going to actually be able to see this thing go off the way that it needs to and it adds this moment of suspense where we see how the protoss is actually going to use their aoe and whether or not it'll actually go well yeah and it creates this whole like excitement around like engaging right like you know do you, you time the first shots to to dodge the first shots but are they holding some back and do you just sort of bolt through them uh yeah it's it's really great stuff to see in the in the uh in the in the terran versus protoss series uh parting ty uh i was really i really enjoyed how chaotic it was uh mm -hmm. again games three and four i really never knew who was up or who was down several times i thought i knew but like the game would kind of go on to disprove me. Uh, and one of the things that, you know, I, I kind of hope people aren't like two units in that, in that series that I, that I hope people are not in too much of a rush to completely like rebalance or anything like that. I really enjoyed how the adept psionic transfer ability 
in which the unit can stay in one place, but sort of projects a a ghost of itself uh, that can move around freely. Uh, and after a timer runs down, the adepts have the choice of then instantly warping to where those ghost versions themselves are. Or they can right, cancel right. it and stay where they are. Mm-hmm. And so there's this constant, like, they end up forcing this really amazing and... It has to be infuriating to to play against someone who can do this at a high level because basically they're making yeah. you play whack-a-mole. And that's what yeah. Harding was doing to to TY was that, yeah, you thought it was hard dealing with a, a an, an exposed natural before. Well, what about when those units that are currently ravaging your worker line could literally warp to your, your main base's worker line? Uh, and you can't do anything about it. You just have to, you know, you, you just have to be in both places at once or... Uh, or or watch them get away from you. That was really exciting. And then to see TY reply with sort of the Liberator's ability to both put pressure on worker lines and rack up easy kills against exposed bases, uh, but then also just to hold armies at bay by creating yeah. those like barriers mm-hmm. of uh, of of Liberator, uh, you know, ground defense modes that that you know to advance through them, you're going to take a lot of free shots. It was really cool to see these both these guys, both these players using these units and sort of exploring the way they, they change the dynamics of the game. Yeah, absolutely. And the Liberator for me was the more fun one to watch because the Adept, like you mentioned, was actually, to me as a, as a Terran player, like deeply frustrating to watch these things happen as like uh, harassment at your natural just instantly transfers into your main. And it's, it's so difficult to deal with. Um, but the, like, the Liberator to me was so much fun to watch because you had so many times what you would see is you would see like five or six liberators get built and then those liberators would go into their ground defense mode which basically means that they put a they put a circle on the on the ground and anything that comes into that circle gets hit with something really really hard and so it's it's very good at locking off key areas and so you'd see like five or six of these things get dedicated to cutting off one choke point making it so not worth it for an enemy to travel through that choke point that they have to go through and 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 fight the terran on the terms that the terran wants to do is almost like creating an impassable barrier and it created this really really interesting positional play that i just i i I ate it up the whole weekend it was so much fun yeah and i i did like how you know the the there were a few times where the liberator line looked really overpowered except again if you ignore it for just a second or leave it in the wrong position for just a moment oh yeah uh, they're yeah. complete paper tigers and there were a few times where ty it felt like he was in a really strong position but he would just forget to reposition his liberators right as a fight was starting and suddenly his ground army is engaging without any sort of air support uh and he'd get rolled and that, so that that went back and forth several times in that series uh you know, I think maybe something else about this this entire tournament, though, is uh, maybe parting just makes tournaments good. Like, no, I mean, seriously, <laughs> what makes the, you say that? the guy is a showman, right? Yeah. Like, a lot of times, like, uh, you know, I, I feel like a lot of times this year, going back to uh, his GSL series versus uh, life, I want to say, uh, the guy just brings it to every tournament where, where he's in contention and, and puts on really good games. And what's interesting about him is that, he will commit to the most ridiculous bonkers crap. And sometimes it will be legitimate <laughs> crap. Like you'll yeah, be yeah, watching yeah. it and you're like, parting, I have no idea where you're going with this. And sometimes he can absolutely salvage that. Yeah. And sometimes he doesn't. He he pulled an amazing win out against Solar, I think, in, in their third game that looked completely improbable. He'd lost, he'd lost bases. He'd lost most of his army. And somehow he broke Solar. But then uh, so, in game six, I believe it was game six where he tried something else that was completely bonkers and it just fell flat on his face and did terrible. So it kind of goes both ways. With oh, him. yeah. 
Well, and I feel like with games six and seven, I kind of wonder if Parting had just burned out by that point. Yeah, he, he fought through the lower bracket and Solar hadn't. And I kind of wonder, he's always had a tendency to maybe cheese a little too much to try mm-hmm. to, to try to sneak wins. But to do it in that situation, especially after it didn't work in game six and he still went for a weird thing in game seven. I kind of wonder if he just hit a point where he was like, I can't win a standard game at this point. Sure. And I think that what you said about being tired kind of rings true as well, because there were moments where it, it did look like fatigue. He was making weird mistakes that were just almost seemed like he was slow on the mouse, you know, like wasn't making decisions quickly enough or something like that. It was really bizarre to see. Yeah, but it made for an amazing, uh, you know, final day of that tournament. And it was it was an absolute blast. And I like, yeah, I think. It was a really auspicious start for Legacy of the Void, especially compared to uh, the way Heart of the Swarm started off, where you're right, one of the big stories was, hey, we have Resume from Replay right now. And the only thing I really remember from that first tournament, in fact, was uh, the the, meta, the medic, Medivac boost uh, mm-hmm. that was obviously overpowered and it made everyone right. angry. Uh, but, the, but there was nothing in that first tournament that really said, "Wow, this is a this is a much more interesting, exciting game." Here, I think there were a lot of things I point to, uh, and you know, and we just have that really made an impression on us. Yeah, it, it definitely felt like this was this was an energizing moment for people uh, in, in the StarCraft II community, rather than sort of a deflating moment that that Heart of the Swarm was. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, so finally, we have some questions from our listeners. A few of you were kind enough to write in and raise some interesting points, so uh, we'll get to them now. Uh, First, from TJ, there's a slight correction and a related question. In your podcast on November 24th, you all mentioned Doublelift moving to TSM. While it is true, you made it sound like he'd left CLG. He didn't. CLG kicked him. There have been a few vlogs that document it, but I just wanted to make sure there is no confusion. And before we go on to the question, that's that's a great point, TJ. I, I definitely did imply that Doublelift had, uh, had, had made a choice to move to TSM. And I think part of what threw me is that he was he announced his move to TSM almost at the same moment he got kicked. At least that's the way it seemed to happen in my head. It was a very fast announcement. And then it all descended into finger pointing, uh, the kind of stuff that I've learned to tune out from CLG over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wasn't aware that, yeah, apparently, like, Doublelift got his walking papers at, like, 2 in the morning, uh, oh, wow. just out of the blue. Uh, so it was not perhaps the most amicable or classy of uh, parting, partings of ways. Sure. Uh, so that that's a great correction from TJ and uh, some important context for this, the saga of Doublelift and those two teams. Uh, anyway, continuing with TJ's email. Uh, since I'm sending an email, how about a question? Team dynamics and personalities seem to tear apart esports teams. Do you feel that esports teams are more prone to falling apart due to personalities and personality conflicts than traditional sports teams? Why or why not? So this is a really, really good question. And I think that it's it's something that we could definitely dive into. Like, the, my instant reaction is to go to the simple fact that teams in esports, like, live together. They spend 24 hours a day together for the most part. Um, it's very common for teams to live inside of a team house and, you know, to constantly train. We're talking training 12, 14 hours a day for a lot of these people. They don't do things apart. They are a team and they live their lives together, which is in completely stark contrast to something like an NBA team, which might show up to practice every day, but for a couple of hours and then they go home. They're your coworkers, not necessarily your life mates, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a really important point. And, you know, also you have the physical limitation. You can't practice basketball players twelve hours a day. Can't be done. You, you'll you'll burn them out. Uh, so they have to have a lot of downtime. You can absolutely 
press esports players to put in ridiculous hours where they have to be together all the time uh, in frustrating, you know, what are often frustrating environments, right? Like practice is not fun. Uh, working through issues is not fun. There, there's something else at work. And, and that is, I think, in traditional sports and, in fact, in more mature esports regions like, say, Korea, uh, the team is the institution. And there's a lot of, like, expectations and values built around that institution. And it's bigger than any individual player. And everyone sort of understands that's the deal when you get involved. In esports, particularly in NA, um, you don't have this. This the, the you don't have strong organizations really. Uh, a lot of them, in fact, are, are almost disposable. Right? They come and go. Like with the exception of CLG and TSM and C Cloud Nine, there's a lot of churn among the, the the personnel of of esports teams, and so I just think that has sort of a that has a negative effect on stability. Right? Because everyone knows you can just bail out when you aren't happy about. The way things are going, there aren't any long-term contracts. The team doesn't have the team doesn't even know if it's going to be in like LCS, for example, in three years. The team can't sign you to a three-year contract really mm -hmm. uh, on that expectation the way like traditional sports teams can. And so I think that's that's another issue is that you know when you have a strong team and you have strong infrastructure, that means you know the coach, the owner, they set the rules, they set the expectations, and they hold players accountable to it. When you don't have that sort of structure it tends to be a little more about how individuals come together. Yeah, you know, and I think about um, in, in League of Legends, you see it maybe even a little bit less, but like in, in Dota 2, the, the North American scene in particular is so wide open that if players don't like their organization, they can just go start another one. You know, the, the North American scene is awash right now with completely independent teams uh, who basically just left their their more stable or more celebrated team names and just started their own teams, you know, and, and they, they're free to do that. That's just something that is unique to esports. Uh, so moving on to the next question, we have uh, Peter Lindquist who writes... I love watching Dota 2. The undeniable skill of the players and the roar of the car of the crowd at large events is very exciting. However, at this stage of my life, I don't have time to actually play the game myself, which makes the current tournament casting style difficult to follow. Uh, for example, the dominant casting style seems to assume that the audience understands the typical roles for all of the heroes, their abilities, and their common item build variations. As an observer of the game, I simply don't have that level of knowledge. I would love to hear more details from the casters about uh, the the roles particular players are trying to play, the their objectives and team fights, and why they're choosing certain items. And as the game goes on, I would like to hear more about how well individual players are executing their strategy. What do you like or dislike about current esports casting? How could they better balance being interesting for the knowledgeable viewers with encouraging newbies? Oh wow! Well, boy, does Dota two need stoppages and play then? Uh, I actually think that's a big part of it, right? Is that casters in Dota 2 in particular always have to just follow the flow of the game. Mm -hmm. Compare that to a good broadcast of baseball, football, basketball. There's always something causing play to be stopped, and there's an opportunity run, to run a replay, and you can have an expert analyst weigh in on you know some facet of what you're seeing. In Dota, it's just stream of consciousness, right? It's just stream of game. And so you can't really like say, well, you can't really bring things to you can't bring things to a halt and explain the intricacies of you know interaction between two characters and their respective item builds mm -hmm. and this exact moment in the game as to why things played out that way. That's very hard to find moments to do that in a Dota match. 
Uh, and I think that's probably, I suspect a lot of casters would love to do that stuff. I just think it's probably really difficult with the way the game is structured. Yeah, and I think that this is a this is a problem that is specifically bad with Dota 2 because it is such, as I say so often in this show, such a deeply complicated game that someone like me who I've, I've played so many countless hours of this game, I still don't really, I still learn something new every single time I play or every, every time I watch the game on the professional level. And, and still a lot of the casting goes over my head when they talk about things that they're assuming or things that they um, they just kind of brush off as, as common knowledge within the Dota scene. Um, I, I think that's really, really keen what you mentioned about stoppages of play because Dota in particular right now, uh, games tend to run fairly long. And I think it's a little bit unrealistic to ask viewers to turn in, uh, tune in for 50 minutes straight of, oh, of yeah. Dota 2. You know, that's, that's another part of it that makes it difficult, uh, for both the casters and the viewers. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big commitment and, you know, something else I think where you could improve this a little bit is that right now your typical Dota analyst desk may have a lot of knowledgeable people on it, but I feel the production level could be upped maybe a little bit and you could maybe run more footage in those segments mm -hmm. and sort of unpack the game a little bit. Yeah. Instead of what I think is the current model in which it's kind of like analysts giving each other crap about predictions or sort of, you know what I mean? Like there's, <laughs> yeah, there, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of sort of inside baseball at the analyst desk where they're having conversations among themselves, which can be good or bad. But if you're, if you're trying to get into a game and figure out how it works, it's a lost teaching moment, right? Where, like, I want to see these guys forget your predictions. Let's go to, like, three or four key plays and explain in detail, uh, you know, what, what we saw there. And, you know, Nahaz was here last week. And, I mean, I would love to just watch a game with that guy. And yeah, have him explain yeah. everything to me. Uh, and, and, and maybe have him tell me stories at night, too. But <laughs> even there, you know, there, there was a point he was, he, was, he was sort of talking about players' roles and, like, what an offlane. You know, you, you referred to one guy's not a support, he's an offlaner. Mm -hmm. But Dota is a game with such sort of fungible definitions of a role and what a player yeah. necessarily does from game to game. Uh, that even that becomes a really opaque term if 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 you aren't already inside it, right? Because it's not like a position in a traditional sport. It's not like position in League of Legends. Uh, Dota is sort of inherently more difficult in that regard. And you know, even someone like Nahas, who's a total expert at at unpacking the game, uh, it, it's still difficult to sort of bring it down to that sort of newbie level. Yeah, and you know, there, there's one other difficulty that I think Dota to has in particular which is you watch a lot of these tournaments like you watch the international and and the first day usually goes really really well on the casting desk like you have people backing up and explaining what certain items do explaining what a, a hero's uh, ability kit is like uh, what a team is going to try to do with their structure and their strategy but by the end of day 13 or something like that or whatever it is with the international i think a lot of times they get very self-conscious about repeating themselves over and over and over again uh when maybe that's the the better thing to do for the viewers but uh, a, a lot of times they they do start to get more inside baseball as the thing goes on more uh more technical more uh over the top in terms of analysis trying to come up with new things to say after all of this time on the casting desk well and every tournament becomes its own story and so it necessarily becomes a little more uh yeah. inward facing mm -hmm. uh but that is a good point as well you don't have you don't have the same three or four broadcasting teams casting every game of football all the way to the super bowl right <laughs> every all sunday in, they do row. all 15 games you know yeah 
uh but in in a dota tournament it is kind of a shotgun blast of yeah. uh of esports that you know if you're if you're you know on-air talent eventually you are going to sort of get a little inhibited probably because you, you you know everyone does have sort of their hobby horses they return to and i can only imagine that in those later stages of a tournament when you have more people tuning in ironically uh because they're curious about it yeah that's yeah. actually when the when the casting becomes uh <laughs> it's most uh navel gazy and, and inward looking anyway uh that concludes this week's edition of esports today and idle thumbs network podcast produced by michael hermes you can learn more about the show and discuss this episode and esports in general with our community at esports.today. We enjoyed answering your questions and would love to get more of them, so please email us at questions at esports.today. You can also follow us on Twitter at ES2D Podcast. If you've enjoyed esports today so far and you have a few spare minutes, you can really help us out by leading, leaving a review on iTunes and telling your esports buddies about us. We'll be back next week to discuss the past, present, and future of esports. For Andrew Gruen, this is Rob Zachney signing off. What about esports tomorrow? There is no tomorrow.